Good morning, Woodland Hills and Podrishners and all of you. Good to see you here this morning. It's been great being in worship with our Echo Worship Band. That singer, lead singer there, this is, you ever heard of the band Amorphous? One of my favorite bands right now. It sounds just like them. They've got a kind of growly voice. It's really cool. So, way, way to go, dude. All right. And I, I appreciate uh, Jeremy speaking last week. Uh, wasn't he outstanding? Uh, he, fantastic message. I have, for the last uh, two years, just felt called to start networking with younger, younger voices of the revolution, I call it. All over the globe, there are these people waking up to the vision of a, a Jesus-looking God and the call to be a Jesus-looking people. And they're seeing how different the kingdom is from Christendom, from the church, militant and triumphant, and all that nationalism stuff. All over the place, people are getting this. And so you may have noticed that we're being intentional about uh, giving a voice to these younger uh, revolutionaries. To see the, the, It's mainly younger people that are getting this, which is not surprising, but it's beautiful. And Woodland Hills is playing a strategic role in that. Uh, we now have, I'm told, uh, on average about 20,000 parishioners every week. Uh, so the congregation is much bigger than what's here. And it's just, it's, we're a feeder system. But we are also, uh, I'm not getting any younger, and so we're looking at the, the younger voices of the revolution. So we're uh, inviting them to come and be part of the pulpit and share with us. And he did a great job. I was down at Anabaptist uh, Mennonite Seminary uh, the last weekend uh, doing some teaching and stuff. And for the third time in a year, I lost my glasses. That's got to be a record of some sort. I can't even get insurance anymore. So I, here I have these little reader glasses, my little $10 reader glasses. And so I've got to put them on when I read, take them off when I don't, and so it's irritating. But I don't deserve glasses anymore. I've come, it's bad stewardship for me to own real glasses, so I'm going with the readers. And I've got to get a new one of these every two weeks because I lose these. Crazy. Today... We're talking about, we're returning to the book of Colossians. You may recall that uh, we were in this book. The way we do it around here is we study a book of the Bible, take our time, take a couple of years, and then we take breaks to do these series, like we just did this series in the book of Revelation, and then we did a little Easter message and stuff. But now we're returning to the book of Colossians. We're coming down the the runway here, the final stretch. I think there's about three more messages we're going to have on uh, Colossians. So we're up to chapter 4, and we left off on verse 2 last time, so we'll pick it up on verse 3. This message we're calling Hanging in the Balance, because it's about prayer, and it's about how much hangs in the balance on whether or not the people of God pray. Now, if you've been here for more than two years or so, you've probably heard something like this message uh, uh, from this pulpit, but um, this is the kind of thing I find, and maybe I'm just more carnal than everyone else, but I find that whenever I return to it, it convicts me, it convicts the daylights out of me. My job as a pastor here is to invite you in on my misery. And so I want to invite you in on this. So it's the kind of thing we constantly need reiterating because we tend to forget. Uh, we can, when I look at what the Bible says about prayer and the importance of prayer, it's like it blows my mind every time I come back to it. Hanging in the balance. So here's what Paul says. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul here is is writing from prison. He says, pray for an opening for the gospel. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. And then in verse 12, which is also relevant to this message, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. 
He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Since it's on prayer, I think it's a good idea to start with prayer. Pray with me here. Abba Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium for your passionate love for them. I thank you for every parishioner and, and the passionate love you have for each and every one of them. And Lord, we now pray that this would be a kingdom moment in which uh, you come and infuse these words with your authority and power to build the kingdom in our life. And I pray, God, it lights a fire, a fire that will not fade, a fire that will burn hot in us, to be a people who really trust in the power of prayer and are invested and devoted to prayer, knowing that talking to you is what changes the world more than anything else, talking to you. Seal it on our hearts, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So the passage is about prayer. And prayer is just a fancy word for talking to God. Just talking to God. There's nothing particularly religious about it. You don't have to use any kind of special language. I, I don't know where that comes from, but it doesn't come from the Bible. Uh, they talk to God the way they talk to everyone else in the Bible. So religion got a hold of it, and we start going thee and thou and thither and whither and hither and thither and, and of thee and the clouds beseech thee of thy bounty and all that stuff. I never, as a kid, it's so confusing. We used, to, we used to pray, bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. And I didn't know what the word bounty mean. But I did go, my dad took me to see uh, mutiny on the bounty. <laughs> so I thought the bounty was a ship. So God has a ship up there. He's going to bless us out of this ship or something. I don't know. I was a confused little kid. Uh, mixed up little theologian. Uh, some people think you have to use a special religious posture or a special religious voice. Oh, God. <laughs> we beseech thee to die. Or you got to close your eyes. Or you got to, you know, th- th- here's the thing. I mean, if that works for you, fine. I'm not going to go after that, but... When you have a special posture, special language, special voice, special anything, it takes it out of the realm of the ordinary. And so it feels unreal. And the whole job of the kingdom is to make our relationship with God our ordinary, to, to intersperse it with everything else we do. And so I encourage people to talk to God the way you talk to your best friend. Uh, use your ordinary language. And whatever helps you do that, do that. But, but it, it, it should be the ordinary of the kingdom person to just be talking to Abba Father. When Jesus calls God Abba, it's a word for daddy. It's intimacy. Dad, here's my concern. And, 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 and there's no special posture. If, it, if you like to kneel, that's fine. If you lay prostrate, that's fine. If you like to walk when you pray, whatever, whatever enhances your dialogue. The important thing is that the dialogue is your normal. And, and we don't like bracket out a sacred space over here that's apart from our normal. We want to make our normal sacred. And so to make it part of your ordinary dialogue throughout the day, just talking to Abba Father. You don't even have to vocalize it, because God knows your thoughts. Though I find that vocalizing it helps make it real, because I don't normally communicate just by thinking it. Can you read my mind? No. You vocalize it, and so it helps. for me it helps make it concrete and real when I vocalize it, though there are occasions where vocalizing it may be inappropriate. If you're sitting at a baseball game all of a sudden, start praying, or you know, you don't want to draw attention to yourself that way. Um, but on the whole, I, 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 I tend to vocalize it because it just makes it more real. And there's a lot of different kinds of talking to God. Sometimes it's just adoration and praise and thanksgiving. Sometimes it's more of a dialogue when we need that. We talk to God and he talks back. Learn how to listen to God. Learn how to discern his voice. And then there's a kind of prayer that's called intercessory prayer. And here is where you, you uh, are talking to God about a situation that needs changing. You're asking God to intervene 
to release kingdom power, to change the situation. You're interceding on behalf of another. And that's the kind of prayer that Paul's talking about here, and that's the kind of prayer I'm going to, I'm going to be talking about throughout this message. So Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. It takes an act of discipline to carve out the space that you need to talk to God. Devote yourself to prayer. And then he says, pray for us. Pray that the door will be open to the spreading of the gospel. So apparently, people's prayer influences the degree to which doors are open to spread the gospel. Then Paul says, pray that I'll be able to speak the mystery of Christ clearly. So apparently, the ability of a preacher to make a point depends somewhat on who's praying for them. So if my sermons suck, it's your fault. I'm just saying. I'll take a little responsibility for it, but... You see, we have, this, we have this individualism thing that we think everyone kind of just does their own thing. But the kingdom, we stand or fall together, folks. And so it's, it's true that the ability of the word to go forth, it depends on who's praying for it. Our ability to minister to others depends on, on, on who's praying for it. Whether doors open or stay closed to evangelism depends on who's praying for it. We're woven in this together. The body of Christ is one. We're part of one body. And, and so we need each other to thrive and to be all that we can be in, in, in the kingdom. From our worship team to our preaching to our children's church, you name it. Uh, we're woven in this together, and so we all bear some responsibility for it. And that is expressed through the power of prayer. And then Paul says that Epaphras, he wrestles in prayer for the Colossians, that they could stand firm in the face of persecution and be fully mature. Now that wrestling could just denote intense praying or could denote spiritual warfare. But the assumption behind the whole thing is that his prayer helps the Colossians to be fully mature and to stand firm in the face of persecution. They're better able to stand firm and to be mature because of his prayer. So if he didn't pray, they'd be less able to stand firm and to be fully mature. And all that is to say that prayer makes a huge difference in what comes to pass. Things really hang in the balance on whether or not God's people pray. Now, I suspect that most people would assent to that intellectually, but I think very few people actually really believe that. As evidenced by how do we in fact pray? Do we pray as though it was a matter of urgency, or is it just kind of a religious activity that we're supposed to do? C.S. Lewis is one of my all-time heroes in the, in the faith. His, his writings were one of the things that brought me back to Christianity after my faith crashed as a, as a freshman in, in, at a university. And... Um, I love almost everything he says. Uh, there's one area, there's several areas, where even with my heroes, I don't, disagree, I don't always agree. Um, in fact, I'd be suspicious of anyone that I totally agreed with. <laughs> it would be too weird for me to handle. So he, I, I, there's a few areas where I disagree with him. And one, of the, one area is, is some of the things he said about prayer. Now, you can find, I think he contradicts himself on this, but I'm going to highlight one area, one thing that he said about prayer that I think he got off on though it reflects a common misconception. Um, he was, I'm going to show you a clip from the movie Shadowlands, which is about his life and this uh, tragedy he underwent. He married later on in life, around the age of 64, I think it was, and his wife had cancer. But there was a period where it looked like it, her cancer went into remission. And that brings us to the scene we're going to watch right now. Uh, good news, I think, Harry. Yes, good news. Very glad, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher can scoff, but I know how hard you've been praying. Huh? Now God is answering your prayer. That's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. 
I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. He's got very little There you go. You know, on the one hand, I have to say that I admire uh, him when he says that prayer, uh, he prays because he's helpless. He prays because if, if it's, he can't help himself. He prays because it flows out of him, uh, waking and sleeping. I wish that was true of me. I'll just confess to you that I'm far more carnal than that. I, I wish prayer came natural to me. It's, it's work. I've got to be disciplined about it. I have to kind of write it into my schedule. I've got to make myself do it. I, I, can't, I can't relate to this. It's, it's just, I can't help myself but pray. Now, maybe if my wife came down with cancer, I'd be in that situation where it would become natural, but uh, my day-to-day is much more carnal than that. It takes work. I have to devote myself to it. But the part that really concerns me is when C.S. Lewis says, I don't pray, pray to change God, influence God. I pray to change me. Is that, is that really true? It sounds pious. In fact, it's a very common view throughout church history, but I submit to you it's not a biblical view. Here's why it's common throughout history. The assumption is, is that if God is all-powerful, omnipotent, he can do whatever he wants, which seems to make sense. And if God's all good, then everything he wants to do is good. But now here's the problem. If, if God's doing everything he wants and everything he does is good, then my asking him to do it won't be any, of any use because he's already doing it, if it's good. And if what I'm asking him to do is less than good or less than the ideal, then he's not going to do it even though I ask him. So what difference could asking him to do anything possibly make? If it's good, he's already doing it. If it's not good, he's not going to do it. So prayer is sort of a pro forma thing that we go through. Now, the thing is, is, everyone sees that throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, you have this premium put on prayer. Prayer is important. And so you have this emphasis throughout the whole Bible. But if your theology doesn't have any room for prayer to make a difference in the world, well, what do you do with it? The answer is you say, well, it's not for God's sake. It's for our sake. It changes us. And so this is a kind of pious sentiment you find throughout church history. But I submit to you that as pious as it sounds, it's completely unbiblical. Completely unbiblical. What we need to understand is this. Yes, God is all-powerful and uh, God is all-good. But God is a relational God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And God created a world where he wants relationship with real agents, real, real personal beings. And to do that, God has to divest himself of some of that all-powerfulness, if you will. He gives away power. He shares power. He's not a tyrant who hoards power. I'm going to keep it all to myself. No, he gives it away. And he does it whenever, whenever he creates free agents. To be a free agent is to have a little bit of say-so in what comes to pass. So God takes 100% of his say-so, which is his omnipotence. He can do whatever he wants. But he creates a kind of world where he gives shares in it, if you will. He gives part of it away. So now all these other agents have some say-so. And the reason he does that is because he wants to have a love relationship with them. But you can't have a love relationship or any authentic relationship with a being that you're completely controlling. Which is what happens if you're retaining all the say-so. So it's like this. Suppose, here's Joe. Hi, Joe. Say hi to Joe. <laughs> so I'm God, and here's Joe. I say, God. I mean, Joe. <laughs> Little identity crisis there for a moment. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing fine. Uh, listen, Joe, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Are you sure? Do you worship me? Yes, I worship you. Okay, well, I got a deed for you to do. I want you to go out there and share that love. The homeless person over there, give them your all the money in your wallet. Okay, I'll do that. Or maybe Joe goes, No, I'm a rebel. I don't want to do that. And then God goes, Damn you! And crushes. The thing is, if I'm controlling Joe, I can't have a relationship with Joe. I'm just a ventriloquist. Hey, how you doing there? Hey, I, I, there's no relationship here. You can't have a genuine relationship unless this being 
has their own independent autonomous say-so, has some influence on you. A genuine relationship has got to be mutually influential. If, if, if it's a one-way thing where one is completely having to say over the other, you don't have a relationship, you have a monopoly. And so you're not even relating to another, you're just relating your, to yourself through this other. If God wants genuine relationships, he's got to create beings who have their own say-so, which means it's a risky world where things might go in a direction that God doesn't want to some degree. Because these agents might agree with him, but they might not. So God shares his power with another. And that's why his will from the start was that human beings would take our say-so and align it with his say-so, so that now God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it also means that we have the potential to say no to that, which means to that degree God's will won't be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what we've done on earth will be what was done in hell. It's in, on earth as it was in hell. It will come from the demonic realm. And so there's a risk in this. But this is why the Bible calls us co-workers. Paul says, uh, he says, we are God's fellow workers. And as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. That, that phrase is really important. It means one who works alongside of another. We're not just an extension of God. We work alongside of God. We have got our own work to do. And the goal, God's goal from the start, was, would be for us to partner with him to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. And part of what that, that partnership is about, a central part of it, is the authority that we have in prayer. The power to influence God and influence what comes to pass through, through prayer. God commissions us, remember he wants a bride who's going to rule, rule with him on the throne. He wants a bride who's got authority, a bride who's got power. And prayer is one of the primary ways that we exercise our kingdom authority in this world, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We make our kingdom his kingdom, our say-so, his say-so, and to that degree, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, because God authentically invests us with our own authority, our own power to determine what comes to pass, he puts himself in a position of need. To some degree, he needs us to cooperate with him to get his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I know a lot of people bristle at associating God with any need. Oh, God must be above needs. God needs nothing. He's sufficient unto himself. I submit to you that comes out of this, that theology comes out of a tyrannical view of God who retains all the power, and so the rest of us are just little, little puppets here. The God that I find in Scripture and the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ is a God who, out of love, puts himself in a position of need. In fact, I submit to you that you can't possibly genuinely love another without putting yourself in a position of some need. God needs us to be aligning ourselves with him in prayer to see some of what he wants to be done in this world to get done. And the Bible talks that way. So, for example, it says in Judges 5, the angel says, Curse Miraz, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. The Lord needed their cooperation, needed their help to get this job done, and they refused, and that's why he was angry. See, the truth is that Prayer is not a pro forma activity. It's not just a religious duty that we're supposed to do. It, it does change us, but the reason it changes us is because prayer changes things. Prayer influences things. And so prayer gives our life significance. We matter to God. We're important in that we, with him, help determine what comes to pass. We have genuine say-so, and we exercise it with every decision we make, but also through prayer. And I submit to you, if you read Scripture... The idea isn't that prayer is just about changing us. Prayer, throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, it affects what comes to pass. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will they hear from heaven. If you pray for the sick, then will they be healed. It doesn't say your attitude towards the sickness will be changed. If you pray, the mountain will be moved. It doesn't say your attitude towards mountains will be removed. If you pray, the disease will be remitted. It doesn't say your attitude towards diseases will change. No, it's about actually affecting the world, what comes to pass, what's here and now. It makes a difference. God wants us to be a bride who align ourselves with him through the power of prayer to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. You might think of it like this. Uh, I, I think of it like as a reservoir of kingdom influence that God sets aside, like a trust fund. And, and God covenants with himself that here is a category of power that he would like to use, but he won't use unless his people agree with him about its release. It's like one author said, it's like a bank trust fund that needs to be co-signed by both the bank and the recipient to be dispersed. So also there's a reservoir of power, things that God would like to do, but he will not do, and covenants that he cannot do unless the people of God agree with him. And it's only when the bride co-signs the loan, and we pray according to his will, that that influence now comes into this world, and the kingdom is released uh, among us. And that means that things really hang on prayer, important things. It's no different than it is with, our, with every other decision we make. We, we understand that the decisions we make impact people for better or for worse. You, you get drunk tonight and go out driving, or you just might take the life of a young kid out in the street. Uh, and that's a, a catastrophic result of the decision you make. A kid's life hangs in the balance on a decision you make. This is what weaves us all together. We're, we're aware that our decisions impact each other for better or for worse. If I'm walking down the street and a house is on fire and I hear a baby on the inside crying, I have a very important decision to make. I could choose to be courageous and risk my life and go in there and try to save that little crying baby. Or I could decide to be a coward and keep on walking. The life of the kid genuinely hangs on my decision. Now, if the life of a baby could genuinely hang on my decision, in an ordinary walking down the street, house on fire kind of situation, why would we think anything less than that is at stake in prayer, the decision to pray or not. If, if anything, from a biblical perspective, I would be inclined to say that more hangs in the balance on whether we choose to pray or not than any other decision we, we could possibly make. Because there are, listen to this now, there are more if-then statements associated with prayer in the Bible than any other human activity. If my people will pray, then they'll be blessed, then they'll be healed, then they'll be saved, then they'll blah, blah, blah. More if-then statements about prayer than any other human activity. And the Bible indicates that sometimes an enormous amount of things hang on prayer. Here, here's, a, here's a classic example, Ezekiel 22. The Lord says this, The people of the land, talking about the Israelites, they practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor, the needy, and they mistreat the foreigner, denying them justice. That's interesting. How you treat foreigners is always a big deal to God. I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land, so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath on them, bringing them on their, bring down on their own heads all that they have done, declares the Lord. So the people were involved in all sorts of sinful activity, extortion, robbery, oppressing the poor, mistreating foreigners, and so on. And God in his mercy had held back the destructive consequences of those sin. All sin has destruction built into it. Its, it's very nature is destruction. But God in his mercy holds back the consequences of that sin as long as he can. There comes a time where God sees that this is not doing any good. You're just enabling the people. You're hardening them in their sin. And so if they don't learn it the merciful way, they have to learn it the hard way. 
And then all God does is he withdraws his protection, and now the consequences of all that they have done comes back on them. Notice how, the, how, the, how he phrased it. All that they have done will come back on them. In the end, sinners end up punishing themselves. God, with a grieving heart, withdraws, and they end up punishing themselves. In this case, Babylon came in and ransacked Rome. Now, here's the thing. God looked for someone to stand in the gap, someone to intercede on behalf of the land, on behalf of the people, and the assumption is that if he would have found someone, this judgment would have come, would not have come. So you could say that Israel was judged because of their heinous crimes, the mistreatment of the former foreigners, the oppression of the poor, and that'd be true. But the more profound point is that the reason Israel was judged is because no one was praying. Because if there had been someone praying, the judgment wouldn't have come. You find numerous examples of, 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 of God announcing a judgment on a nation and someone intercedes. Moses intercedes, or Aaron intercedes, or, and, and God changes his mind, and, and, and the, uh, the, the history goes in a different direction. God, the sovereign, almighty God, has set up the world such that we influence him. Because he has a genuine relationship with us. And uh, he sets aside that reservoir of power. You can avoid judgment through this. You know, in 1911, as you all know, Jerry Fowell, Pat Robertson, and a number of other Christian, Christian spokesmen took their little platforms, or large platforms, unfortunately, and they denounced that they had the knowledge that this happened to America because of the gays and the liberals and the abortionists and, and the, the, uh, whatever their pet little sitting groups are. It's their fault. The evolutionists, you name it. And that was a sad day for the church. It justifies people having animosity towards Christians. If they were more biblical, if you want to pin the blame on anybody, what they should have said, what I wish they would have said is said, you know what, folks, America, we repent. We, the church, repent. Because we confess that we have not been praying the way we ought to be praying. We ought to, it's on us. This is on us. Because this passage and there's others just like it indicate that whatever the level of sin is, it doesn't matter. If there's, if there's people interceding, that is what puts a hedge of protection around a country, around a nation. And see, that would have been much more biblical because Jesus said, whatever sin you think you see in another, consider that to be a dust particle compared to your own two-by-four sticking out in your own eyes. And so that ought to have been the attitude. I, I see no point in the blame game on any account, but if you're going to blame somebody, blame yourself. But the point I want us to see here is that it's a power. Can we, do, do we dare believe that the fate of a nation could hang in the balance on someone praying? Because that's exactly what this passage is saying. Things hang on prayer. Everything in the kingdom is positively influenced by the power of prayer, but that means it's negatively influenced by the lack of prayer. My ability to speak the gospel clearly is to some degree dependent on your prayer. I need you if I'm going to be clear. Uh, our ability to have doors open up to spread the gospel depends on the people praying. Our ability to feed the poor, to house the homeless, to take care of the needy. It depends on the people of God praying, our children's church, our worship ministry, the experience we have here on the weekend, our small groups, our discipleship programs. All of it depends on people praying for it. It will only have as much kingdom value as there are people praying that it has kingdom value. God leverages that much on prayer. So I implore us, if this is your home church, will you devote yourself to whatever else you're committed to praying for, pray for this ministry. We desperately need it to be all that we can be for the kingdom. Uh, we, we need people covering us regularly in prayer. I'm convinced that the role we've played so far is the result of the fact that I know there are prayer warriors who cover us, me, the, every area of the ministry daily in prayer. 
but we always need more. If you want to see this thing explode and have a greater impact than it's having, then we commit to praying over it. And so we always say, read the bulletin and get on the website and look at the various ministries and cover each one of those in prayer. So can you commit to praying for that? And here's something I find helpful. And maybe it's just me, but, but try it on. I find that when I, when I pray for someone, it helps me to envision, to envision the good that it's doing. Because more often than not, my natural eyes can't see it. And so I imagine, and I, I, the imagination, as you know, I, I believe is the inner sanctuary where the, thing, the spiritual realities become concrete realities to us. I envision, like if I'm praying for somebody, a spotlight coming down on them, a spotlight of a blessing. And it reassures me that I'm leaving them more kingdomized than they were before I prayed for them. And I, I, and I just represent it, and it, it helps me to stay invested. Uh, it, helps, it gives me motivation to keep on pressing on. It makes it more real to me. So when you pray for things, envision it. In fact, I'll argue here in a moment that that's what faith is all about. Envisioning the effect that, that prayer is having in the world. Things really hang on prayer. Now let me say two other words about prayer. They, they address some common misunderstandings. And some of this will be review for some of you. For other folks, it'll be brand new. But here it is. Number one, there is no magic and there are no formulas. Lock that in. There is no magic and there are no formulas. Here's a common magical formula that people have. If you pray and, and uh, what you're praying for doesn't come to pass, they'll say, well, it must not have been God's will. It must not have been God's will. As though God's will was the only variable that affected what comes to pass. And see, that assumes that tyrannical view of God who's pulling all the strings. He gets whatever he wants. So if the kid dies of leukemia, that must have been his will. Or there'll be others who say, oh, no, it's never God's will for a child to die of leukemia. So if the prayer wasn't answered, it must be because you lack faith. Uh, if you had enough faith, it would have been done. Now, see, here's the thing. It's true that praying according to God's will is important. Uh, prayer is not some Santa Claus grab bag thing where we get to ask whatever we want. We're twisting God's arm to get a better car or better house or better clothes. No, the, a prayer is a kingdom activity. It's to advance the reign of God. And it's okay to ask for you know, personal things, but it's got to be in line with what the kingdom is all about. If you're, if you're praying for a blessing, you better know that the only reason for praying for a blessing is so that you can be a blessing with it. All right? It's never just a me, me, me thing. Daddy, can I have, can I have, can I have, can I have? Uh, you know, God would be doing us a disservice if he, if he answered those kind of prayers. So pray according to God's will. It's very important. It's also very important to have faith. Jesus said, according to your faith, be done to you. But folks, there is no magic and there are no formulas. God's, God's will is a strong variable that affects what comes to pass, but there's many others. And our faith is a variable that affects what comes to pass, but there are many, many others. The world is far too complex to box into a little magical formula. And whenever we box the world or God into a magical formula, we always end up damaging people. So if the child with leukemia dies, you either got to blame God, make him a child killer, or you blame the parents and all the other loved ones who uh, care for this child. Either way, someone gets slimed, either God or the people, and both are equally grotesque. The crazy thing is that we have an entire book of the Bible that is written to refute those two extremes. It's the book of Job. The world's far more complex than just what God wants and what you want and what you have faith for. No, look at, among other things, there are uh, all the decisions that, that humans make. And every one of those, if, if, they, if God genuinely gives a say-so, he has to honor that say-so. And every decision is like a, a pebble dropped in the pond that causes ripple effects that affects things later on. So we've got a whole history of human decisions and a whole history of angelic decisions. And all of that has an impact on what comes to pass in this present world. 
Who you are now is to some degree influenced by what your ancestors did in the 10th century. I like the groove, you know, it's a nice groove, but not really appropriate right now. Okay, please turn off your cell phones at the present time. Um, you know, I, I, I've shared this before, but I, I know in the Boyd history that if it wasn't for some moron ancestor I had in the 11th century who capt- captured the feudal lord's daughter and held her for ransom, resulting in the Boyds being kicked out of Scotland, I would have been, I would have been nobility. Huh, I could have been somebody. I would have lived in one of those castles. We were keepers of the palace. We were vassals. We were high-ranking. Now we got nobodies because this stupid moron ancestor of mine, uh, God help me, I shouldn't have called him a moron. Sorry, moron guy, but you were really stupid when you did that. Um, and see, so the, 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 behind every particular thing, my glasses sitting here, this guy here, the stand, this paper, why am I wearing this coat, this shirt? There is a whole history of influences leading up to it. And prayer doesn't magically cancel all of that. What prayer does is it releases a kingdom influences that pushes back on all aspects of that that are not in the kingdom. But it doesn't automatically change everything. Like Also, no one has free will because you pray to prayer. It doesn't work like that. This world is incredibly complex, which is why we don't know why things happen the way they do. Why anything happens the way it does. What we call understanding an event is simply a little bubble of knowledge in an infinite sea of ignorance. <laughs> to understand anything, you'd have to know the entire history of the universe, uh, human and angelic decisions, as well as every, every quantum particle and every movement, because everything affects everything. And of course, we can't know that. It's like this. Paul said that Epaphras prayed for the Colossians, right? That they could uh, stand firm in their faith in the face of persecution and that they would be fully mature. And that prayer makes a huge difference. But does that mean that the Colossians no longer have the free will to walk away from God if they want to? No, they can still do that. They can still backslide or stay immature. It just makes it harder for them because Epaphras prayed, but it didn't cancel their free will. And so if you ask, you know, why did someone walk away from the faith? Don't blame Epaphras. You could blame the person. But kingdom power is an influence in a kingdom direction, but it doesn't cancel all the other, other variables. And so we just have to say, when, when you pray for someone, and the prayer isn't answered the way that you prayed it, the right response isn't, oh, it must not have been God's will. Nor is the right response, oh, you know, you lack faith. The right response is three wonderful words, words that Christians have a hard time saying. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But what's, the word's much more complex than I can fathom. Could have something to do with what happened in the 11th century, for all I know. Uh, I, what, what I can know is this. God is on the side of goodness, not evil. God's on the side of health, not sickness. God's on the side of righteousness, not unrighteousness. God's on the side of justice, not injustice. God's altogether beautiful, not ugly. So if something's ugly and unjust and, and it comes to kill, steal, and destroy, that you assign to the devil and other worlds other than the God. God always looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He's good all the time. All the time, God is good. Amen. We... We don't know much about the world. We really don't. Everything that's going to strike us is arbitrary. How good and evil is dispensed seems perfectly arbitrary. We don't understand the unfathomably complex world, but we do know God because God's very good at revealing himself, and he does it on the cross. This is a definitive revelation of his character. So trust in the... He's always working to the side of the good, never on the side of the bad. And secondly, you've got to know that your prayer made a difference, a huge difference. Even if you didn't see the outcome that you're praying for, it made a huge difference. James tells us this. Here's the promise. That the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So know that even if you didn't see the result you're praying for, you you were powerful and effective in bringing the kingdom of God into that situation. The the situation, even if it's still bad, is more kingdomized than it was before you prayed. Maybe the kid wasn't healed of leukemia this time, but maybe the next time he will be, because it's building on what you did this time. 
You see, we can't naturally discern often the effect that prayer is having. So by faith, we just have to affirm that there is no such thing as a waste of prayer. Prayer is not ever a waste of time. Even if it doesn't result in what you're praying for, you left the situation more kingdomized than it was before you prayed. The second thing I want to say has to do with the nature of faith. There's so much confusion on this. I, I, it's why I wrote the book, uh, uh, Benefit of the Doubt. And I encourage you to get it if, if uh, you're confused on the nature of faith. I, I spoke recently with a man who or I t- had email correspondence with a guy recently who I've been in dialogue with for the last year. And it had to do with, he's a missionary in a different country and a wonderful man, wonderful family, wonderful uh, church he's building down there. But his, his wife was pregnant with twins and there were some serious complications. And he, believing in the power of prayer, he read the book, Is God to Blame? And it really influenced him. So he took prayer very seriously and almost to a fault, doing nothing else but praying. He and his wife and, and relatives and the congregation, they just interceded on behalf of this, this pregnancy. Unfortunately, what happened was one child was born stillborn and another was born with serious complications. Now, he knows that if it wasn't for the prayer, maybe he would have lost both. And so he thanks God for that. But he honestly confessed to me, he says, I, I am in a situation where I, I don't have any faith to muster up for prayer anymore. I can't pray with faith anymore. I left it all on the table back then, and frankly, it doesn't seem, I don't see that it made any difference. And he, his idea was that, the assumption, it's a very common assumption, is that your faith is as strong as you are certain. And so to pray with faith that your child's going to be healed, that this child with leukemia is going to be healed, means you are certain, you make yourself certain that this child will be healed because you're praying for it. And then when it doesn't happen, well, then you can understand why that would kind of burst your bubble. I've actually been exactly where this guy was at, about 12, 13 years ago, coming back from Cambodia, praying for this young lady that I just loved, and she was, her legs didn't work. Um, and I left, I and this team left everything on the table just praying with faith because it would have been such a miracle, not just for her, but for this whole village, converting them from Buddhism to Christianity. One miracle would have done that and left it all on the table and she wasn't healed. And how many times can you get yourself up to pretend like you're certain that the person's going to be healed and then they're not? At some point, the bubble bursts. Well, see, what I learned was that that is not the biblical nature of faith at all. That's a very modern psychological concept of faith that somehow got caught on by almost everybody. Your, your faith is as strong as you are certain. You never question it. You, this is going to happen. You have strong faith. Biblical faith isn't like that. They weren't psychologically oriented the way modern Western folks are. Their whole concept of faith was a covenantal faith. Faith is not psychological certainty about something coming to pass. Faith is rather a commitment to move in a certain direction in the face of uncertainty. It's a covenantal commitment to walk this way even though you don't know the outcome of things. If you're honest with yourself, when you're praying for a person, unless God gives you a word of knowledge, you don't know that they're going to be healed in this instance. Let's be honest about that. And the people who won't acknowledge that, they're playing a religious game, trying to convince themselves because they think God is impressed by their ability to make themselves psychologically certain that this prayer is going to result in something. As though there was something virtuous about that. A person's ability to convince themselves of something, well, people who are best at that are people who are delusional. They're really good at that. And the people who are not good at that are people who are rational. Does God just want a church of deluded people and is he against rational people? No, you don't know that, that, how it's going to turn out. But that's not what faith is about. Faith is saying, I believe this is God's will and I'm going to move in this direction, though I don't know what the outcome is going to be. 
That's faith. A strong faith is one that acknowledges I have doubts. I don't know if this is going to happen. Because I'm a human being, and the world's very complex. How can I know that? But I'm going to move in this direction. Look at Hebrews 11. This is the Heroes Hall of Fame of Faith, right? Ask yourself the question, how many of those people, those heroes, actually saw the outcome of what they were hoping for? The answer is very few. Most of them died not having seen that which they hoped for. So faith isn't about being certain that you're going to get it in this lifetime. Faith is about moving in a certain direction in obedience to God. In fact, the author starts Hebrews 11 this way. And I quote this verse a lot because I think it's so important. He defines faith for us. Faith is the substantiating, where there's hypostasis, the substantiating of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Uh, Elegos. Faith is about seeing a future as a substantial reality, concretely, vividly. You believe this is God's will. You envision it concretely as a substance. You substantiate it. And that creates a conviction in you that it will be so. So you press in that direction. That's what faith is all about. Do you know that this is going to result in what you're praying for? Not unless God gives you a word of knowledge. As a human being, you can't know that. But that's okay because that's not what faith is about. Faith is obediently pressing in a direction. And so when we pray for someone, to pray with faith isn't about knowing how it's going to turn out. It's about pushing in a certain direction. When I pray for somebody in a wheelchair, I envision them getting out of that wheelchair because I believe that it's God's will because Jesus always came against stuff like that. And so I'll push in that direction. I'm, I'm, I'm a fellow worker with God using my energy alongside of his energy to push in a kingdom direction. Do I know he's going to get out of the wheelchair through this prayer? How could I know that? I don't. I don't know that. But I know this is God's will, so I'm going to push in that direction. And if he doesn't get out of the wheelchair and you ask me why, I will say the universe is a very complex place. There are a lot of things that affect this. I don't know. But I do know this. God's on the side of him walking. And I do know this, that this situation is now more kingdom than it was before I prayed. Because the Bible tells me that prayer is powerful and effective. And so it's powerfully and effectively bringing the kingdom into this situation. And for all I know, maybe the next time or the tenth time from now when someone prays for this person, then they'll get out of the wheelchair. And I contributed to that by praying now. But I don't need to know any of that to be faithful in prayer. Faith is about envisioning a future you believe to be God's will and obediently pushing in that direction. We don't need to pretend we know more than we don't know because, folks, we know squat. We know, we know nothing. We're, we're, we, what we call knowledge is a little, a little oasis of myopic vision in a sea of this infinite ignorance. But that's okay. We're just humans. We can live with that. What we've got to know in a sea of mystery that surrounds us. Why you're wearing the shirt you're wearing right now is a total mystery. Had anything been different in the past, you would be wearing a different shirt, for all I know. So we can't explain anything. But what we got to know is in this infinity of mystery, know this. God looks like the crucified Christ. He's always beautiful, always good, always on the side of life. He comes to give life abundantly. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So anything that is killing, stealing, and destroying, negating life, that is of the enemy and maybe of human wills that are aligned with, with the enemy. But wherever you see the beauty and goodness and life and wholeness and justice and righteousness... There you're seeing God breaking through. You've got to be able to tell who, God from the, from the enemy. You get those two confused, and your passion for God is going to be seriously compromised because you can't be passionate in love with an ugly God. Secondly, trust in the power of prayer. And this takes faith. You know, and it goes so against our American utilitarian pragmatism. We'd we, we like to see the results of what we're doing. And if we don't see the results of what we're doing, it feels like a waste. I totally get that. I struggle with that all the time. I'm practical. I like to see the outcome of things. I hate to waste time. It's going by so fast. I, I want to spend it wisely. 
But here is where faith comes in. When you pray, it's not a waste of time. Envision the future. Pray towards that. Envision the good that it's doing. And you, that is time well spent. That is precious time. God needs us to spend that time in prayer. It's good to pray throughout the day. Make God part of your everyday conversation. But there needs to be time that you devote to prayer where you're just talking to him, interceding on behalf of the church, on behalf of this ministry or on that person or whatever God lays on your heart. And trust that things really hang in the balance. I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, the greatest hero up there won't be Billy Graham or some other great Christian spokesperson. It'll probably be, from the way I see things in Scripture, some unknown monk who spent his whole entire life interceding on behalf of others. Something that we know we've never heard of. It's what we do in secret. And it's just like God to do this. He's a very odd God when you compare it to the ways of the world. He takes something that would seem so insignificant, something that's unknown to everybody else, something that's private. You do it in your prayer closet, as Jesus says, and yet that is what changes the world more than all the heroic efforts that are out there in the public. Uh, be a, be a, a hero of faith, a hero of prayer. prayer. So if this is your church body, I end with this. Will you commit to covering every aspect of this ministry in prayer? Uh, God may lay on your heart other things to pray for. Be obedient in that. But look at the bulletin, look at the website, and cover this with prayer because, folks, everything in the kingdom is influenced and determined by the prayers of the people. Prayer, you might think of prayer is the gasoline. Oh, here's a metaphor. I just, I just came up with this. A zinger. Okay, maybe it's not that clever. But, okay, prayer is the gasoline that the engine of the kingdom runs on. Prayer is... Okay, we're going to podcast this one because that's the only time I've said that. It's a good metaphor. We need your... We, we need your gas, all right? <laughs> uh, gasoline, I mean. <laughs> all right. Hey, I'm going to... <laughs> uh, 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 would you stand? I'm going to seal this in our hearts. And as I do, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Especially after this message, you ought to believe in the, in the importance. And by the way, we, we get reports all the time from our prayer warriors up here of things that God's doing. It's, it, it makes a difference. Sometimes it's little things, sometimes it's big things, but we believe in the power of prayer. Take advantage of, of, of this ministry. So, Abba Father, as we leave here, I pray, Lord, we can do it as a people who have a fire burning in our heart about the importance of prayer. It so runs upstream, everything else in our culture. It's so counterintuitive to us because we're so material and so pragmatic. And to the natural mind, it doesn't seem like prayer makes much of a difference. But Father, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Father, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Increase our faith in the power of prayer. That we'd be motivated to spend time talking to you and, and, and uh, taking responsibility for every area of the ministry for we all stand or fall together in this. Help us be a people who do warfare on our knees, uh, talking to you, releasing that reservoir of power of the kingdom that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all of God's prayer warriors said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay on your knees. Pray.